Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week, and we are talking the best books of 2020. This is probably my favorite podcast of the year. Mine too. Uh, I'm always interested to know what are your favorite books that you have read this year, and share mine as well. But, you know, we read some of the same things, but we really diverge in a lot of other areas. I, I looked back at our recommendations for the last couple of years, and in 2018, we had a lot of the same books. Yes. This year, I think we might have one of the same Maybe. Books. Yeah. So we're really diversifying to give the most recommendations. And I think, I, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think Amazon can still get you your books by Christmas. I think so that's right. if you're listening and you're looking for some Christmas presents, and certainly Kindle can. Kindle can get them to you. Amazon <laughs> Prime can get them to you for Christmas. So I always like to start out by thinking about the year in reading on broad terms. Mm-hmm. And this year should have been a really good year for reading because we've been in lockdowns, that's we've been true. in quarantines, and. I don't think I read nearly as many books this year as I did last year. Really? But I definitely watched a lot more TV this year (laughs) than I watched last year. Maybe we'll have to do recommended shows of this year. But yeah, I didn't use as much of my COVID time to read as I thought I would. Uh But it's certainly been a different year of reading than last year. That's true. I would, overall, there have been more books read in America. Definitely. But I would predict that that is eclipsed by how many Netflix shows have been watched in America. Absolutely. So I, I want to start us out by giving some recommended books, and then we've got some categories that we're going to hit uh, of different genres or different interests. But let's just start out with our top five or six best books, recommended books. And the caveat is not all of these books came out in 2020. These are just the best books that we read in 2020. Uh, although I think on mine I tried to keep it pretty close to what came out in 2020. But these are just... The best bang for your buck. 2020 was a disappointing year to me. (laughs) It was not a great year in publishing. Um, But there were some gems. There were really some gems. So what were the best things that you read in 2020? I read a couple in the leadership category. And the first was by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Crazy Busy. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor, and we've talked about a number of his works before. But you know the time management genre is really crowded. And on the one hand, you have kind of the Christian time management that's, you know, trust Jesus more, you'll get more done. And then on the secular side, you have, you know, time hacks, life hacks. What Kevin DeYoung does is he takes a spiritual approach, a whole person approach to it, but it isn't just a Sunday school lesson, trust Jesus more. It's a think about pride. Think about some of the other self-identity things that really help uh, you not be overwhelmed by what you're doing. So I'm probably not doing it justice, but I would say before you get in too heavy into the time management genre, check out Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Second one in the leadership genre is by Dave Rubenstein. And I know you're a big fan of Dave, but he is a a world-class interviewer. Mm -hmm. And this is a book called How to Lead. And it's simply, I believe, transcripts of his interviews. Here's what I like about it. You don't have to read the whole book cover to cover. They're just different interviews. But what I really like about it is the diversity. For example... I happen to really like his interview with Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. But then in the military area, he interviewed General Petraeus, Colin Powell. 
Then in the sports category, he interviewed Coach Krzyzewski. And then in politics, for example, Nancy Pelosi was one of his interviews. So they're really diverse, Mm -hmm. and they talk about leadership and success secrets of these people. So those were two, How to Lead by Dave Rubenstein, Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. And then I'm going to move over to literature, and this is a guy that I know you also like, but uh, Joseph Epstein, who... uh, I guess it's pretty popular at the moment we're recording this for a Wall Street Journal editorial he wrote. Yes. Don't call him doctor. Yes. He uh, has written a lot of books, and they're collected essays Mm -hmm. and articles that he wrote. His latest is called Gallimaufry, G-A-L-L-I-M-A-U-F-R-Y. And I'm, full disclosure, I did not know what that word meant until I bought the book. It is a jumbled collection of of disparate things. This has uh, political articles he wrote in the last few years. It has articles on people, you know, Mm -hmm. little mini biographies. He even has one on why he uses the comic sans uh, lettering. That's controversial. Very controversial. Uh, But he is probably one of the best users of the English language alive today. Yeah, I think he's one of the better essayists that's writing right now. So those are some of my top ones in the leadership and literature category. How about you? What are some of your best reads? I started the year reading one of the best books of the year. In fact, this might be my pick. I think there's two that are kind of tied. If if you just say, for any person, what is your recommended book of the year? This this is one of the two, and it's The Splendid and the Bile, by Eric Larson. Yes. And the reason this was such a great book to read this year is it is quote-unquote historical fiction, except he researched enough. So his previous books really have been classic historical fiction. But in the intro of this book, he says that he researched enough that he's fairly confident that this reflects, if not verbatim quotes, because you couldn't know some of the stuff that he's writing about the attitudes of the people who uh, are involved. And it is about the Blitz in World War II, right when Winston Churchill takes over as prime minister, and how his family and the people in England endured the bombings from the Germans over that first year, really, of uh, the war where England was fighting alone. And the reason it was such an interesting book is Larson is an incredible writer. The chapters are really short. Some of uh-huh. them are a page long. Some of them are eight pages long. So you can pick it up, put it down, read through it. But it mirrors life during the coronavirus to an extent. There is kind of a, an unknown element, and everybody's trying to go about their lives, and but everybody's a little worried about an Making enemy that you can't major really... Major adjustments to their lives. Exactly. And how these people bore up together and mm-hmm. pressed on through the war. And it's it's a really good book. It's a great read. Another book that was really good this year, uh, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. It's a, a little bit of a follow-up to what he did in The Benedict Option, but it's not mm-hmm. a sequel. You don't have to read The Benedict Option. But essentially moving down the line and saying, the threat of totalitarianism is here. And what he does is he goes and looks into people who have lived under the former USSR, mostly. And what did they see as communism and totalitarianism started to rise in their communities? What do those people think about what's happening in the U.S. now? 
And he stresses things like the importance of family, the importance of truth, mm-hmm. the crisis of journalism. Anyway, he's a great writer. That was a really good read. Another one that was really good is called Breaking Bread with the Dead by Alan Jacobs. This one I have not read, so tell yeah, me he's a tell professor me more. at Baylor, an uh, English professor. He's done a lot of work on C.S. Lewis and Auden and a lot. He's a very nice um, literary sensitivity. But this book is essentially about the value of reading dead authors. Hmm. And so in one sense, he's pushing back on the decolonization of literature, you know, decolonizing the canon movement to say, you know what, we have to read people in their own time. And there's a lot we can learn from people if we let them speak on their own terms. With enough nuance to say, though, that that doesn't mean we give ancient authors carte blanche to say and think anything and declare that it's amoral. But it's it's a really nice reading of the value of reading old, time-tested books and old authors Uh, learning from the past, communing with people in the past through their works. It's it's a really great book. This next one is my second pick for if you're just going to have one recommendation for the year, this would be it. It's called The Zealot and the Emancipator, and it's by H.W. Brands. And this book is a really interesting kind of biography, uh, a dual biography between Abraham Lincoln on the one hand and John Brown on the other hand. Hmm. And so John Brown is the zealot and Lincoln is the emancipator. Uh-huh. And he tells a story, you know, a chapter or two with Lincoln, a chapter or two with Brown. And the really interesting ex- the the really interesting uh, point is how do you go about writing a wrong? You know, how should you go about fighting a great evil? So both of these men are convinced that they have a duty to fight against slavery, but both in very different ways. So Lincoln in kind of a gradual political way, trying to keep the union together. John Brown in a way that he's willing to die. He's willing to kill. He's willing to split the nation apart. He's willing to do anything he can immediately to end slavery in the United States. And I won't go into how the book ends and how Brands ties this story together, but it just seems to me like the perfect book for right now right. in the way that we're approaching issues. So social justice now means monolithic, immediate rejection of anything that you don't agree with. Right. But if you look at the way that things have been dealt with in history, the most successful movements, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, Abraham Lincoln as opposed to John Brown— the zealots are typically not the ones who bring about the long-lasting change. It's typically the ones who go about it like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So without saying too much about how he traces this thought through the course of these two men's lives, it's a really, really good book. It's really important. I think it was really good to read in the wake of the protests and things this year. And like I said, in a culture that believes that if you are not uh, you know, all into something, ending it immediately, taking the most dramatic action possible, uh-huh. then you're not doing anything. Right. And if you look back, that's really not how social change typically happens. So H.W. Brands, The Zealot and the Emancipator. That's an astute, was a very astute good, point. Uh, very good book. What about uh, Christian books that you read this year? Any Anything that really sticks out to you? There are two that are at the top of my list. These 
for recommendations, I would recommend both of these books really highly. The first is accessible to everyone. It is called Letters to a Young Pastor by Eric Peterson. If you know that name, he is the son of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, uh, famous pastor, translator of the message paraphrase, and writer of so many great books. Uh, This is his son, Eric, who's also a pastor. Letters to a Young Pastor are personal letters written from Eugene to Eric and back, although this book only publishes the ones that Eugene wrote to his son. Mm -hmm. And Eric published these when he was a young pastor with the church, and Eugene was just writing his thoughts on a variety of subjects. You know, there are two things I like about it. One, they're short letters, short chapters. You can use it as a devotional. You can pick it up and put it down. But every one of these letters is a gem. Mm -hmm. And it is probably one of the best books for pastors that I've read in a long time. But it's also just an encouraging book for anyone. So Letters to a Young Pastor by Eric Peterson. I Mm -hmm. believe you also read that. Would you agree? I've read a little bit of it, and it's one that you can really read slowly. Mm -hmm. You can read a letter at a time and get a lot out of. That's true. Now, this one's maybe a little more personal to me because Stanley Hauerwas is one of my favorite uh, theologians. And this book, he's written a number of good books, but this one is called Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church, Politics, and Life. Approaching the End by Stanley Hauerwas, just a few years old. Now, there are things in Hauerwas's theology that neither you nor I necessarily agree with, but he basically takes a series of articles on the church, on politics, and on life from this point of view, seeing everything through the lens of the end view of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the end of all history, the denouement of, of God's plan through history and looking at church politics and life through that. The section on the church and politics alone is worth the price of the book. Here's a great quote that kind of sums up uh, the theme of this. Hauerwas says this, I take it to be crucial that Christians must live in such a manner that their lives are totally unintelligible if the God we worship in Jesus Christ does not exist. In other words, if, the, if our belief in the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ is not true, then our lives are completely unable to be understood. Mm-hmm. So I liked Approaching the End by Stanley Hauerwas and Letters to a Young Pastor by Eric Peterson. Well, I would say I could be out of the loop on this, but this was not my favorite year in Christian publishing. I agree with that. Um, there were several Christian books I read this year that I wanted them to be something that they weren't. Um, but there were two that I think are really worth recommending, two really, really good books. And uh, there are a couple that have been published this year that we'll get to here in a minute that I haven't read that I think are going to be really good. Right. Um, but the two that the two that I read that I, w- I think are would be good for anybody to read, would be Theopolitan Reading. And this is by Peter Lightheart. So Peter Lightheart uh, runs a ministry called the Theopolis Institute. Mm-hmm. So they their goal is to revive the church and culture by uh, exegeting scripture, by mm-hmm. thinking about the role of the church in the world. And uh, they are putting out a series of books that encapsulate their mission. 
So they have the Theopolitan Vision, that was really good. That was volume one. They had Theopolitan Liturgy, which was really good. I think, was that number three or number two? Two. Theopolitan Reading is the third one. Theopolitan Reading, which is about reading the Bible. And the thing I think is the X factor in this book is not only does Lightheart have a very unique and rich way of reading the Bible, so you can see that in his commentaries, either on Revelation or First and Second Kings, or he has a more technical book on reading the Bible called Deep Exegesis. But in this book, he lays out the fundamental principles for reading the Bible. And we almost might say reading the Bible as literature, reading the mm-hmm. Bible um, in its own genre. Right. So it's reading spiritually, but also reading textually. It's something mm-hmm. that he's going to call reading typologically. Right. So how does the Bible interpret itself, for example? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he points out that is so often forgotten in books about the Bible is the best way to learn to read the Bible is to learn from someone who knows how to read the Bible. So right. to have a mentor, to have someone who is teaching you and leading you through Scripture. And that's what he tries to do in this book, is to give a picture of of how to read the Bible. And he shows you how to do that by covering a lot of these big themes in Scripture. And so that was a book I really enjoyed. And I, and I think he has a very unique way of explaining how to read the text. And I think it's a very faithful way of reading it. The next one is a little bit more theological. It's called History and Eschatology by N.T. Wright. And this was a expanded uh publication of his Gifford Lectures, which are a series of academic lectures on natural theology. And in this book, he covers the question of what does natural theology, which would mean what kinds of things that we can discover with our senses, what kinds of things Mm -hmm. we can discover outside of Scripture, are important for us in theology. This is a big Protestant-Catholic divide. So Protestants typically don't have a ton of interest in natural theology. We want to work from Revelation outwards. Catholics, most of the time, think that you have parallel tracks that inform each other. You have natural theology, and then you have Scripture and Revelation. And you can reason your way through both of them, and they mutually inform each other. A la Thomas Aquinas. Sure. What Wright is trying to do is to say, yes, we start with Revelation, but let's not forget that the events of the Bible are real historical events. So there's a tendency in theology to pretend like everything we're dealing with is ethereal and theological. But actually, a lot of what we're dealing with in theology is a study of what happened in history. The resurrection happened in history. It's not just a theological truth. It is a historical truth. And how do we approach that? How do we do theology in light of real-world events anchoring the things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's a little a little theological, but it's a great read. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you don't want to read it, but you want to get the message of it, Hugh Hewitt did a great interview with N.T. Wright about this book. And it is not technical. Uh, Hugh does a great job of talking to him about the themes. And of course, N.T. Wright is a great explainer. He's right. a great talker. And uh, so even if you don't want to read this book, because it is a little bit of a bear to get through, that interview captures a lot of the main salient points of this book in a, in a way that was really uh, informative. Mm-hmm. You know, the area we always struggle in the best books is fiction. We just are not great <laughs> fiction readers. And listeners sometimes will text or email in and uh, 
chastise us for not reading very much fiction. Did you read any uh, recommended fiction this year? I don't have any recommendations. The closest, I did read some fiction this year. I read a lot of poetry this year, by the way. But back on the fiction track, uh, Hilary Mantle, you and I both like the Wolf Hall uh, series, mm-hmm. video series, but it's based on a, a set of books, and it's a, it's just one of the books, right? Yeah, the series is great. The series is BBC. And it is excellent. And it covers the first two books, gotcha. Wolf Hall right. and Bringing Up the Bodies. Right. And I read those two. I will say uh, I didn't put them on my recommended list because her style is so unique. I enjoyed it, but I don't think everyone will will like her mm-hmm. style of writing. But the video series is absolutely well done. Right. I read a couple of uh, mystery writers this year, but honestly, none made it above a three-star. And I make it a policy. <laughs> if you're not above a three-star, you don't get on my list for a recommended <laughs> Yeah, it, it is sparse in the fiction world for us. I made a concerted effort to read more fiction this year, and I have three books to recommend. Oh. So I mentioned this last year. I've been working through the Longmire series, uh-huh. um, yes. which is a great show, the Netflix show. But I will say the show can't even touch the books. It is like two-dimensional compared to the books. Um, it's by Paul Johnson. And I will say, the I think the best book in the Longmire series, and you don't have to have read the others to read this one, but I think it's number eight in the series. It's called Hell is Empty. Hmm. And it is just a great Western mystery book. He's a, he is uh, the sheriff in Absaroka County, Wyoming. Small town. He's lived there his whole life. He is kind of a detective sheriff, usually investigating some kind of either murder or crime and anyway hell is empty is really well written it is a play on dante's inferno Hmm. in the way that it's structured it's really an interesting book the next one is the book dune by frank herbert and this is going to be what i think is going to be an awesome movie and so i always try to pick a book or two to read before a movie or a tv show comes out and so this year i saw the preview and i thought i've got to read dune Dune is not new, but I'm sure and I hope the treatment is great. I read the Dune books many decades ago and really liked them. And so I know it's just been republished this year, but couldn't make my list because they're, what, 40 years old. That's true. Yeah. No, it is an excellent world. It's a richly crafted world. The Dune series is a well-made world, much like, now I'm not putting it on this uh, on a par with Lord of the Rings, but it's a richly textured world like mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, like Middle Earth. Yeah, it's it's a very complex world. It predates Star Wars. That's one of the things you have to know when you read it. It's sci-fi, kind of. Yes. And I don't I've I've talked to several people about this. I don't even know really what to compare it to, but it's almost like if you combined like Star Wars and the Book of Eli or something together, all in right. one. It's a it's a really interesting book. I think the movie's going to be great, but the book is excellent. The last one is, uh, uh, the last fiction book is called Ride Sally Ride by Doug Wilson. <laughs> and it is a satire of our society right now. The premise of the book is, uh, you have this guy, and across the street from this guy, another family moves in, and he discovers when they invite them over to dinner that the wife is a sex robot. And so you find out in the first couple of pages that the husband of the robot 
asks him to go over, the character's name is Ace, asks him to go over and keep an eye on his wife while he's gone. And Ace, in a Phineas-style fit of rage, takes this robot to the town dump and throws her in the trash compactor. Well, a couple of days later, he's indicted on murder charges. And so the rest of the book is essentially about the trial and the charges and what happens. And it's it's funny. It's really funny. It's a great satire of our society. It's just absurd mm-hmm. enough to be um, poking at some really interesting things in our society. And it's deep in some ways that you don't expect. But it is. Doug Wilson's a great writer. It's a good book. You know who, when I read some of the excerpts of this book, he rises almost to the level of P.G. Woodhouse in some of the wittiness of his comments. And he reminded me of P.G. Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's very clever. There's some really great lines in this book. Um, The next category is not necessarily a separate category for everybody, but for us it has become a standalone category, and that is history books that you read in 2020. I know both of us have have a love of history and there were some great history books this year. There were. I read a number of, in my little system, five-star history books. But mm-hmm. I'm going to boil it down to one, an autobiography, uh, just to get off the beaten track. And there are. it has become popular right now to publish biographies of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. If you remember, Malcolm X died in 1965. He was killed by followers of Elijah Muhammad. Uh, Supposedly. Yes. Right. Isn't there a new documentary about who killed Malcolm X? But here's, well, there can be no doubt historically (laughs) about that. But here's here's the point I wanted to make. It is very popular right now to write a lot of revisionist biographies of Malcolm X. Malcolm Mm -hmm. X is being appropriated for causes that he may or may not have supported. Now, I'm not telling you I think Malcolm X is a hero. What I, I want to tell you is, be, here's in my opinion, be very careful about reading modern biographies in general, but certainly of Malcolm X, because I believe there's a lot of bias. In the mm-hmm. ones that I have, have read, a lot of bias. I'm going to recommend to you the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what this is. Malcolm X, now this is Alex Haley before Roots, before he became famous for writing the book Roots and that sort of thing. This is Alex Haley as a young journalist, out of the military, edge journalist. Long story, I won't tell you how he connects with Malcolm X, but he does. And Malcolm X agrees, unbelievably, to tell his story, his life story. And so he commits to coming in the midst of his busy life and uh, everything that's going on to spending a few hours each week talking to Alex Haley telling him his story in the first person. Mm-hmm. Alex Haley writes notes, and this book is written from the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. You are hearing Malcolm X talk about his life. And here's why I want to recommend it. It is amazing in its frankness. It His life story is an amazing story. It's not a gingerbread, stereotyped, intersectional, critical race theory kind of story. This is raw, real human story. Malcolm X was a hustler, uh, grew up on the streets. Uh, He became a follower of Islam. I'm going to put that in air quotes here because he would. Elijah Muhammad, 
then broke with Elijah Muhammad when he found out that real Islam, when he visited Mecca, what that really was, that led to him being killed by followers of Elijah Muhammad. But his ideas on uh, the white man were brutally honest, Mm -hmm. very interesting to know what he actually thought, how he didn't hate every white person, but his idea, let me just summarize it by saying his ideas are very powerful and interesting, whether you agree with them or not. But here's probably the most enlightening thing, other than him as a human being, is the way race relations, the turn they have taken, has far more to do today with Malcolm X's ideas, which are very much in favor of segregation, not Mm -hmm. integration, very much in favor of what I'd call black supremacy Mm -hmm. versus what over the past 40 years or so, the way race relations have been modeled after Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Now, these two men disagreed. They were friends. They very much disagreed in their approach. And I would say that if you read this, you will say, this is the model that is popular today in race relations. Mm -hmm. And I would liken it to something you said when you were talking about the emancipator and uh, the zealot with John Brown. Malcolm X is very much the zealot mindset, which you see today in race relations. Martin Luther King more closely identifies with the emancipator, with Lincoln. So I would just highly recommend that on a human level. Right. You know, this is a topic, I haven't read this book, but I really want to in the new year. But this is a topic I have been thinking a lot about because I was lecturing on the ethics of race Mm -hmm. in my ethics class at DBU this semester. And one of the things, in order to prep for that class and for that lecture, I was reading a couple of the real popular anti-racism books. Uh So D'Angelo's White Fragility and Kendi's How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist. And I almost couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, I, I know that these books are bought to essentially sit on people's shelves, but you know, when they're on like CNN doing interviews and stuff in the background. But I, I could not believe what is in these books. And I'm going to write a long piece about this in 2021 about the movement in 2020. The death of George Floyd marks a new historical epoch mm-hmm. in race relations from a Martin Luther King Jr. approach to reconciliation right. to a Malcolm X, Ibram Kendi. And they're not the same, but... It's not a coincidence that the hero of the uh, race reconciliation movement now is Malcolm X. And you've heard language from different people in different groups about how Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-violence, pacifist approach is not good enough anymore. That is a serious, serious societal shift. And what we did in class was... We compared the new anti-racist books with Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. Yes, very instructive. It is so eye-opening to compare these two and to see how they're reasoning, how they're arguing. I think this is one of the most significant things that's happening in our society right now. And this book is something I really want to read because of that. Well, and I don't uh, want to say that you will agree with Malcolm X's, obviously wouldn't necessarily as a Christian agree with his religion, You wouldn't necessarily agree with his approach to this, but I will say if you want to read books in this genre, Malcolm X's ideas are so much deeper 
than the kinds of things you just mentioned. This is like uh, the difference between Malcolm X, who has really lived it, really thought it out, uh, versus a th- just a, a person on the street when you think about uh, Kendi's book and D'Angelo's book. They are so weakly thought through in comparison to Malcolm X's ideas. Mm-hmm. So agree or disagree, uh, the man is authentic, mm-hmm. and it's well worth reading uh, mm-hmm. what he thought. I'll, I'll recommend a couple of history books this year. The first one, I think, was written in 2018, and it's called The Square in the Tower, and it's by Neil Ferguson. Mm. And Neil Ferguson's stuff is great. I think he's been one of the most prescient historical thinkers on what's happening today. He writes a column at, at uh, Bloomberg. He's got a great podcast called The Goodfellows with a couple of the guys at the Hoover Institution. You know, my only big complaint with him is he insists on spelling his name in such a British way. Yes. So if I were looking for him, how might I, uh, what I might search for? Yes, it's it's Neil spelled N-I-A-L-L. Okay, thank you. Which actually was pretty convenient this year because the other Neil Ferguson in Britain was that doctor or that immunologist who was all about the lockdowns and then it turns out he was having an affair across town multiple times every week and he so lost not his Not the job. same. This is not the same Neil Ferguson. That, this is not the same okay. uh, Neil Ferguson. But his book, The Square and the Tower, is essentially about networks versus hierarchies in history and using this framework of networks and hierarchies to interpret a a giant look at history from the Renaissance until now. And so why is it that groups or networks, even ones that don't have a defined leader, have shaped history? So you think about the Cambridge Circle, for example. You think about the Knights Templar, for example. Right. You think, I mean, and he goes through Would so many like Al-Qaeda different... as a modern example be a network yes. versus a hierarchy? Yes, and one of the things he talks about is how do you fight against a network like that? So mm-hmm. he uses Stanley McChrystal's book to talk about counterinsurgency mm-hmm. in places like Iraq or in fighting ISIS. How do you fight against a group that's not a hierarchy? It's a network. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of great stuff in there. Networks tend to uh, undercut themselves. They tend to get connected enough to where there's a central hub of information, and then it becomes a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm, I'm not doing it justice by describing that framework, because most of what you read in the book are little excerpts about uh, Henry Kissinger's networking in diplomacy, right. or JFK's connection through his dad when he was the ambassador to England is a big Part of this, or ancient guilds that become the framework of modern Europe in the way that businesses are aligned. And anyway, it's a great read, uh, and it has some really profound historical insights. Two other books on the same topic this year that take the exact opposite stance, and they're both worth reading. There's a book called Appeasement by Bouverie, B-O-U-V-E-R-I-E. And it is a look back at Britain in the 1930s leading up to 1940 and the appeasement of Hitler. And what he essentially argues is that Neville Chamberlain, uh, who was the British Prime Minister going into World War II, and the network of what he calls amateur diplomats, Mm -hmm. who are these British lords and earls who are so well-connected across Europe that they're essentially doing official diplomatic business, 
And some of them do get diplomatic posts, ambassador posts. But a lot of them are just writing letters to people because, you know, their fourth cousin is right. the prince of, you know, Denmark or something. Or, you know, they, they grew up and went to school with someone who's now in uh, Kaiser Wilhelm's government or something like right. that in the early, uh, before World War One, And then that leads into these relationships before World War Two, And so... Mm-hmm. He examines this, and he basically condemns Chamberlain and this this group of of diplomats for causing World War II. Now, not in the sense that they affected what Hitler right. was doing, but in the sense that they missed every single opportunity you had to stop Hitler. Because it would have been easy to stop him early on. Yes, and so he points to Munich in 1938 when right. Neville Chamberlain proclaims peace in our time uh-huh. as kind of the, the arch appeasement moment. Now, another book takes this exact same time period, the, the up to the first year of the, of the Second World War, and it is called Britain at Bay, and it's by a guy named Alan Allport. And it is the first in a two-part series that he's writing about World War II. And he's a very unique historian. What he's doing, he's a little contrarian, because what he's going to argue is, yes, Chamberlain was bad, but no one would have been much better. So he goes through and he looks at what the decisions that Chamberlain made, the way the sentiment in the country was changing. He's got a point there. He's he, It's a very interesting book. I disagree with him in some places, yeah. uh, but that's his point. Yeah. is He wants to take on the main narratives of how we interpret World War II and the events leading up to it and saying, but was it really like that? Mm-hmm. And he, he has a very interesting way of writing. Anyway, if you're a history buff of, of any kind, uh, Britain at Bay is is far and away the best history book I read this year. And I can't wait for the second volume to come out, uh, I think, in a couple of years. Um, Moving to a new category, one of the things that you see a lot of in best books of of the year lists are all the popular books you see on everybody's best book of the year list. So after you've seen two or three best books of the year lists, you see the same titles over and over and over again. It's almost like you and I are in any danger of that. Well, not from us. Have we even read any mainstream books this year? (laughs) It's like the publishers have an in Uh or something like this. But the other thing is, the reason I like best book lists, or the reason I ask people what they're reading, or when, when somebody has something they're writing a review of, or something like that, is because what you really, really enjoy reading says something about you. Uh, mm-hmm. the, not just the fact that you're reading uh, books that other people are reading, but I always want to know what are your um, off-the-beaten-path reads, whether they're the nerdy reads or they're the niche interest reads or they're the deep track reads. What are the books that you read that you wouldn't necessarily recommend because right. you don't know if anybody else would like them, mm-hmm. but you really enjoyed them this year? Well, I have a couple that are well off the beaten path. One is a book by a guy named Ward Farnsworth, and the title is Classical English Style. And what the book is about is why does great writing, why is it great? Why do we like it? And so he takes a little different approach. This isn't uh, the elements of style by Strunk. This isn't a how to be a great writer, although it is intended to transfer some of these ideas. But he basically looks at 
writing in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century in English, amongst English speakers. And he says, why are some of these things so good even today, you know, 200, 300 years later? And he analyzes it in terms of the use of words. Some words are powerful, some are not. The etymology of words, how we use certain uh, Saxon words and other kinds of English words in their derivation and how powerful they are, how sentence structure is powerful throughout time. But the really great part is he gives a lot of examples from Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln and all these other writers that have stood the test of time. Why are that? Why is that great English writing? And so it's a little bit of a niche type thing, but it's very interesting mm-hmm. reading. That does sound interesting. I've seen, I saw you with that book, and I thought I need to check that out. You, you would like it uh, a lot. The second one just is representative of my taste. I like uh, reading Jewish rabbis from the Mishnah to. Uh, obviously Maimonides and Nachmanides in the Middle Ages, and even a few modern rabbis. And one of the rabbis, and and I like that because I want to know, how do Jews think about their scripture? How has that come through time? And so uh, one of the rabbis that I like is a a man named Abraham Joshua Heschel, H-E-S-C-H-E-L. He's very famous. Mm -hmm. But he uh, walked with Martin Luther King, for example, and the mm-hmm. civil rights marches uh, because of his beliefs and uh, has Judaism led him to that. But Heschel is a deep, deep thinker and represents Orthodox Jewish thought in the 20th century. He's died now. And I read two books, one by him I'll recommend to you. It's very thin, very easy read. It's called Sabbath. And it is a very thin little book with his meditations on what does the Sabbath mean from a Jewish point of view. Just brilliantly written, just Mm -hmm. insightful. And then a second one I read this year is a collection of his works. I've read several of his works. His works on the prophets, by the way, are absolutely excellent. But I read one that was new to me this year. It was just a collected, curated sample of his writings and letters by his daughter, Susanna Mm -hmm. Heschel. So... Abraham Heschel, anything that he's written, but particularly this little book called The Sabbath, particularly well done. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a taste for both of those books right. to like them. How about you? What are some of your deep reads this this year? Well, this is this is an area I love, and I hope there's a few listeners that, that think, oh, that's, that's an area I really would love to read. One of the books that I really enjoyed this year, again, I think it was published last year, but it's called Virtue Politics by James Hankins. And Hankins is a professor of medieval history at Harvard. I think he is one of the most fascinating people writing. He he, he will write some popular things. You'll see his work on uh, the new criterion sometimes. He'll write at uh, Law and Liberty every now and then. He's got an article in American Affairs uh, about once a year. Anyway, his book, Virtue Politics, is kind of a a summa for him of his studies in Renaissance political thought. And I think his ambition in this book is wider than what he's able to do in this book because the book still reads pretty academically, Mm -hmm. but it has a very practical, important idea at the core. What he says is, 
if you look at Renaissance Italy, so if you look at starting with Petrarch and you look all the way through Machiavelli and right. beyond, you see that there's a whole group of people, these, these humanists, that are trying to accomplish a goal that is relevant today, which is how do you, how do you recover virtue in your ruling class? So their problem was they had a lot of tyrants in these city-states right. who were not virtuous at all. They were tyrannical. They were oppressive. And the humanists decided that they wanted to recover virtue in their leaders. And so they did this by two means. They looked back to the classics of Greece and Rome. So you see a lot of translations of the Greco-Roman authors at this time period into Italian, um, Greeks into Latin, and a lot of commentaries and expositions. You see a lot of histories that trace their heritage back to things like the Golden Age of Rome. But at the same time, you see a blend of Christian morality. A lot of these people were very committed Christians. And they're asking the question, how do we create an environment where we can train people who will lead government virtuously? So how do we train princes right. that will be virtuous and good rulers? Anyway, it is a great book. Very interesting, uh, but pretty technical. Another one I read that, that I would recommend to people if by chance you're interested in this is called Blood Royal, and it's by a guy named Robert Bartlett. And it is a fastidious study of how power is passed down through uh, medieval into modern Europe. So he looks at all the dynasties of Europe and asks, how do families and dynasties and monarchies transfer their power mm, and it i mean part of it reads like a soap opera because you have all these people who are jockeying for uh succession either mm -hmm. through adoption or backstabbing or killing siblings and cousins and all of this but then you get all these great little stories about serendipitous things that happen to where you know a great example is our modern queen of england should never ever right. have been in the line of succession right uh it only just so happened that her uncle abdicated but even before that you go all the way back to victoria there's no reason that she should have been in the line of succession but here she is longest serving english monarch uh -huh. so anyway he goes through and categorizes all these things waiting for children um, looking for a spouse in you know medieval Europe when you're a king or a prince or something. Anyway, it's, it's it. I could see how most people would think it would be very boring, but it's a really interesting book. Uh, two more: the origins of war and the preservation of peace by Donald Kagan. So he's a historian. His area of specialty is the Peloponnesian War. His book on the Peloponnesian War is quite good. It's very good, and he is a very um, high-caliber scholar. Mm -hmm. But this book is written more for kind of a popular-level history buff, and he looks at the Peloponnesian War, he looks at uh, the Carthaginian War, mm -hmm. uh, World War One, and World War Two, and the Cold War. And he says, why did these wars start, and how did they end in peace terms? Mm -hmm. And it's more of a look, it's, it's more of a book that's on anthropology, honestly, because he's analyzing why certain leaders and why certain groups of people did what they did to get to the brink of war. So he's banking on Thucydides' observation that war essentially comes from three causes. 
honor, interest, and fear. That's mm-hmm. why people fight wars. And so he traces those themes through all of these wars. And so if you want a good overview of what happened in history to create these five great wars, this is a really good book. Well, can I ask you a question about that? Because there's a lot of interest and a lot of writing right now in international relations about uh, China, the rise of China in a world where the United States is, has been the sole superpower since the end of the Cold War. And the some think that based on Thucydides' observations that a war between the United States and China is inevitable. Others think that it is avoidable. So it sounds like this book would be very relevant to that discussion. It is. And I think this is a great book for geopolitics. It's a great book for history. It's a great book for leadership. But there, there is a book called The Thucydides Trap, mm-hmm. which uh, I think was published a few years ago. It's by a Harvard professor named Graham Allison. And it's also a great book. And it basically says, when you have a dominant power who's confronted with a rising power, uh-huh. the dominant power, uh, unless they do some very particular things, is almost always going to have to engage the rising power in a war of some kind. And mm-hmm. so Athens and Sparta are the original case of this that he looks at. Right. And then he looks at the rise of China to say, will the United States get stuck in the, Th- the Thucydides trap of a rising China? Right. And I think he's probably really got some good analysis in that book. Mm-hmm. But for a broader ranging look, this book by Kagan is a great book. So the last thing I'll recommend is one of my goals in 2020 was to read all of Shakespeare's plays in 2020. And I only got about halfway through the plays. There are like 37 of them or 36 of them. Uh-huh. And uh, I, along with that, I picked up a book about Shakespeare. And it has an overview of each of the plays by Harold Bloom. Mm-hmm. And Harold Bloom is a literary critic and I think just a brilliant, brilliant writer and thinker. And as I was reading his book, I think I'm, I should have looked this up. I think the book is called uh, The Art of... Creating the Human Being or the Art of Being Human or something like that. It's on, It's called Shakespeare, but that's the subtitle. Mm-hmm. He keeps referencing this book that he wrote called Falstaff. And if you've read any of Shakespeare's historical plays, starting with uh, the Richard III play, uh-huh. going into Henry IV, which has two parts, and then Henry V, uh, which is called the Henriad, then you meet this character in Henry IV called Falstaff, John Falstaff. And he is the mentor, kind of overseer of Hal, who becomes Henry V. And he's a great character. He's funny. He is deep. And Harold Bloom wrote this book called Falstaff, Give Me Life, is the title Hmm. of the book. And it is an ode to John Falstaff. I don't know that I love anything as much as Harold Bloom loves John Falstaff. (laughs) And he analyzes this character, and he talks about what Shakespeare was doing with this character through these plays. Uh And he has a very tragic end, uh, which I won't spoil. But anyway, this is a total nerd choice. But if you're at all interested in Shakespeare... Uh, then Falstaff by Harold Bloom is a great choice. And I'll add this. There's a Netflix movie this year called The King. And it's a really good movie. It's uh, based on the Henriad, Mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, Henry IV, Henry V, Part 1 and 2. And it's got uh, Timothy Chalamet in it. He's the main character. And it's, it's really well done on Netflix. 
I will say, if you watch that, you won't think much of John Falstaff because he's he's kind of a minor character. Right. But the movie is actually really good. Yes. But anyway, this this book is really interesting if you've read some Shakespeare, if hmm. you're interested in that. Okay, the last thing I want to get to is first up in 2021. So what are the books on your stack that either you didn't get to read in 2020 or you've just got on the horizon that you think might be some of the best books of 2021. Yes. Well, I'm a cluster reader, as you know, and I'm currently researching the next series I'm going to do on world, major world views. So I have a number there. But uh, for in, just for my reading, there are two. Uh, one I started, well, actually, I started both of them. The first is uh, called Abe by David Reynolds, and it's a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and you have to ask yourself, there, I, I believe he quotes that there are over 6,000 biographies of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. so why do we need another one? Well, David Reynolds' specialty is writing what are called cultural biographies. And so I can already see this, uh, I'm probably a third of the way through. He is writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln with less attention to the details of what he did and more attention to what him made him the person that he was. What did he read? Mm-hmm. Who were the influences in his life? What was going on in the culture? I mean, what did Americans think at that time? So Abe by David Reynolds is called a cultural biography. So far, very interesting. The second is one that you gave me and... Uh, Uh, We're both fans of Carl Truman, theologian, Mm -hmm. professor. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And so far, Truman is not disappointing in his analysis of where we are today in our understanding of the self and explaining what's going on. So those are two that I've started now for just personal fun reading. And uh, I I think both of those are going to be really good. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to reading both of those as well. I've got both of those in the stack. And what I've read of Truman so far, I do think the the hype is right, that it will be one of the best books of the decade for understanding our cultural moment. Uh, the ones that I will recommend are books that I have and I've really wanted to get to and just haven't gotten around to but yet. your predictions that they're going to be standouts. I think these are going to be really good. So the first one is Battlegrounds by H.R. McMaster, which I know you've already read mm-hmm. this book, so maybe you can Very confirm or deny. You will like it. Uh, but I've listened to H.R. McMaster talk about it several times, and I, I'm really excited to get to it. I think it's a great look at modern geopolitics from somebody who's helped shape a lot of modern geopolitics. Right. Very incisive so, mind. That's one I'm looking forward to. The Hour of Fate by Susan Burfield is on Teddy Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and the making of modern capitalism. So I think one of the most interesting phases of Teddy Roosevelt's extraordinary life is breaking up the big companies, the antitrust suits, taking on the strikes, taking on the big barons. That's just a fascinating time period. And uh, this is a new book. Al on that, The Hour of Fate, Roosevelt, Morgan, and Capitalism. I, I think that one's going to be really good. I do, too. You know, I read a biography of uh, Teddy Roosevelt this year that was really good, uh, and there was a piece of it, of course, about the trust. I didn't really mm-hmm. understand where antitrust legislation came from and what was the trust. Mm-hmm. And J.P. Morgan, talk about really sharp guys. He and his buddies yes. had figured out a, a really good system of doing business 
mm-hmm. to create monopolies, and they're not quite as evil as they as I'm making this sound. Right. It's more of a natural thing that somebody was going to fill that vacuum. But Teddy Roosevelt, the way he dealt with that was just amazing. So an entire book about that would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think with the with the ongoing story about antitrust suit filed against Google, right. antitrust legislation aimed at Facebook and all of the, the FANG companies, Amazon as well, that's going to be an interesting topic. And so I thought this would give some mm-hmm. shed some light on that. The last thing is I've been on a big Clarence Thomas kick the last month or two. And I think part of it is because now he is the de facto chief in the majority on the Supreme Court. If if Roberts conti- continues to side with Kagan and Sotomayor and, and Breyer, then Thomas is essentially He's the senior the senior guy on the conservative of, side of, of, the, of the other five. And so you know, I, I will say this the 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 book that I want to read is called Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution by Myron Magnet, who used to be the editor of City Journal. And uh, it's about this phase of Clarence Thomas's life where he became a conservative originalist judge, or he developed that judicial theory. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't start out that way. He kind of started out as a radical, honestly. We started mm-hmm. out in seminary, first of all, right. and then he became a radical. And then when he got into the government in, I think it was the H.W. Bush administration, that he started this transformation and mm-hmm. then he was appointed to the Supreme Court. So there's a great documentary called Created Equal, and it's, I think it's on Amazon Prime, uh, about Clarence Thomas's life. And I will say this, there's uh, so much talk this summer about tearing down statues and who should be our heroes and that kind of thing. And I think some of that discussion was good. I think a lot of it was probably overblown. But there are people that we've built statues to in our past that are not heroes. And we need some new heroes. I mean, the question is, who could you build a statue to today that everybody would be okay with? And I don't know that everybody would be okay with this, but if you want a living person who we should be building statues to in America, Clarence Thomas is one of the people that we should be honoring. I mean, he is a true American story. He grew up in abject poverty, raised by his grandfather uh, after he, he was in elementary school age um, and worked his way up and thought his way up to being now one of the most prominent legal minds in the history of the United States. He will be one of the most consequential Supreme Court justices we have ever had in this country. And he grew up without running water. He grew up in abject poverty. I just think he's a such a phenomenal story. He doesn't get the credit he deserves. But anyway, this book is about that period of his life where he became who we think of today as Clarence Thomas. You know, that's a good point because we tend to caricature people, put them in little stereotypical boxes and we won't erect a statue to Clarence Thomas because he's a conservative. Sure. Uh, Or fill in the blank. I'm not trying to be partisan here, but we need in America some heroes that stand for some of our core values, not our core partisan political interests Mm -hmm. by anyone's standards. Clarence Thomas is an inspiring story. Mm-hmm. And we need more American heroes who embody our shared commitments right. to hard work and uh, virtue. And Clarence Thomas is certainly that. Yes. It just pains me that I think the best-selling book of this year is A Promised Land by Barack Obama. 
And if it's not, it's it's Michelle Obama's book. I right. can't remember which one has passed the other one now, but uh-huh. those are the top two books. And to a certain extent, this is true. They're premised on the fact that they are a great image of the American dream, that you would have a black man in America who becomes the president of the United States. And that is a phenomenal story given our past. But when you think about Barack Obama's story and you think about his path to the presidency and then you set it next to something like Clarence Thomas's, we have room for lots of good stories. Right. But I, it just pains me that his is so overwhelmingly popular and Thomas's is so overlooked. And Clarence Thomas's has a richness that you are not going to find in A Promised Land. Right. And I just would love for more people to look into his story and appreciate that there are a lot of people like him in America. And one of the things that make America great is that people like Clarence Thomas can be Clarence Thomas. Right. And I just think that's one of the best things about our country. And so I've really been diving into his story lately, and that's the next book on my list, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. So to end, I did a little research this week for books that are coming out in 2021 to keep on your radar. And I'll, I'll just go over these really quickly. First of all, there's a new Jordan Peterson book coming out in 2021. Oh, 12 More Rules. 12 More Rules for Life. And despite the threats from the workers at uh, <laughs> Penguin Random House, it will be published in 2021. Neil Ferguson has a new book called Doom coming out, which is, uh, from what I can gather, all the different ways that humanity can be met with a crisis. Hmm. So whether it's another pandemic, one worse than this one, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, something in outer space happening, mm-hmm. whether it's a climate catastrophe, anyway, Things that spell doom for the human race. The second volume of Rick Atkinson's trilogy on the American Revolution is due out this year. I don't know if it has a title yet, but the first one's called The British Are Coming. And it was really a phenomenal book about the revolution. And uh, the second one's coming out probably at the end of 2021. Andrew Walker uh, has a book called Liberty for All coming out. And it's about religious liberty in America. I think that will be one to watch out for. We'll probably review that one. We might even have Andrew Walker on the podcast to talk about that one when it comes Mm -hmm. out. And then the last one is called Founding God's Nation, Reading Exodus. And it's by Leon Cass. And he has a really interesting book about Genesis. He's working his way through the Pentateuch. And uh, this will be one to keep an eye on in 2021. So with that... We've concluded our best books of 2020. I hope somewhere in here you found a book that you really Everybody found something off the beaten path out of this. Something you'll enjoy and you can get here by Christmas. Would you like to know what our listeners thought were their best? Because I enjoy their emails describing some of their favorites. We would love that. Send it in. Email us at info at soweespeak.com. Post it on the comments section when we post this episode on soweespeak.com. Or... DM us on social media and let us know what's the best thing you read in 2020. We would love to hear it. We'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.